You know, the last service, I told so much of my life story that I didn't have time to say all the things that I wanted to say about the sermon because I really feel like God wants to speak to this church about some things that he's, he wants to do here. I just think you're on the, you're right on the cusp of an incredible breakthrough here. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about my story. Somebody told me during the break time when I was praying for people that I didn't finish my story. So I'll finish my story and then I'll tell you the beginning. My, (laughs) my husband and I have been married 60 years in February. We have, (laughs) yeah, we got married when I was 16 and he was 18 and it's been pure bliss ever since. (laughs) We have three children that are older than me. You know, you never think your children are going to get older than you, but they do. They get older than you. I tell my children, I really feel bad that you are older than I am. And um, they're all empty nesters. It's a very strange thing to be a parent and a grandparent, and your children don't have their children at home, so they're in the same position that you're in. I have, I have seven grandchildren. All of them serve the Lord. My children serve the Lord. And my, our, youngest, our youngest son is a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia. He is a pa- one of the pastors at Victory Church who has, when they have a lot of satellites all over the city. And we're very proud of all of our kids. Our children have raised their children to serve God. And they're with the highest integrity. I now have two great-granddaughters, and I'm wishing that I could have more great-grandchildren. But, you know, my brother asked me a few years ago, my family, you have to understand, my family... um, They were very spiritual, but, you know, the kind of spirits that were there were not the best kind of spirits. Uh, My dad was an alcoholic. My mother um, had many men. My dad beat my mother up almost every night. We lived in a home that was chaotic and chaos and and very much a difficult place. If if I would have made it to a senior in high school, in, in the yearbook, I'm sure I would have been in the picture that says, most likely to never succeed. But God changed my life. But um, anyways... Um, I, my, my brother said to me, do you have any great-grandkids? I said, no, I don't have any great-grandchildren yet. I said, you know, my children believe in getting married before they have babies. And my brother said, are they related to us? <laughs> so there were five kids in my family, and plus my cousin. My, my cousin uh, lived with us because even though my dad was an alcoholic, his mother was a worse alcoholic than him. And um, my parents didn't want me. My mother didn't want me. I was born the last of, of five children. My sister was seven when I was born. She was the baby of the family until I was born. My mother handed me to her on the day that I was brought home from the hospital. My mother didn't name me. She didn't want to give me a name. She didn't want me. My oldest brother named me after his girlfriend and his friend's girlfriend friend. And so when my mother came home with me, she handed me to my seven-year-old sister and told her to raise me. And my sister threw me across the room because she didn't want a baby either. I was raised by my sister who was Mommy Dearest, if you've ever seen that movie. But you know, I 
I am so grateful she serves the Lord today. My sister is a Christian. And, you know, I, do, I just think she did a great job with me for a seven-year-old. I mean, even though there were times it was really, really hard, um, I'm grateful that there was somebody there. I don't think my parents ever looked at my report card. I don't think my parents ever cared where I was as long as I was out of their way. And consequently, when I was 16, I got pregnant. And I got pregnant by a, a, one of the nicest boys in town. He stole a car when he was 15. And he went, <laughs> he went to military school to get rehabilitated. And after re his rehabilitation, came home, got drunk one night, and had some boys in the car with him. And the, he tried to outrun the police. They, they made a roadblock. He went through it. They made another one. He went around it. They made another one. He went through it. And they had to shoot his tires to stop him. You know, and one time his sister said to me, you know, it isn't that we didn't like you. We just wanted Bobby to marry a nice Christian girl. I said, Nancy, a nice Christian girl would not have married your brother. <laughs> <laughs> so they were very fortunate to get me. I was the best he could get. And, <laughs> and so we, I'm very, very grateful to God. If it wasn't for God, number one, I don't think I'd be alive today. If it wasn't for God, I wouldn't have three kids that serve the Lord. And if it wasn't for God, I wouldn't have seven grandchildren that serve the Lord. You know, God changes our lives. He changes everything. And sometimes it's hard. You know, I had some people come up for prayer today that having trouble in their marriage. And I want to say this to you, to everybody. I can remember sitting in church when I was young, and Bobby and I would have just had a fight. And, and, I, and I would look up at the pastor and think, I bet he and his wife have never had a fight. I bet they don't fight like us. They're certainly not sinners like we are. I mean, we're just the worst. And one time we had a fight and I drove to church in one car. He drove to church in another car. And I sat on this side of the church and he sat on that side of the church. And the pastor preached on marriage that day. <laughs> it's like, ugh. You know, and, and, and you know, the, the great thing about uh, when you're having trouble in your marriage is when you, when you really want to serve God and you're in the ministry, you've got to say you're sorry because you can't go in and minister to people at, at when you've never said you're sorry. I used to hate those days. You know, we had a Sunday school class for a long time, a hundred people. It was really a small church. We'd have a fight on the way to church and, oh, I'd be thinking, oh, I got to go into the Sunday school class. I've got to teach. And I'd say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I, was, that I wasn't nice. And, he'll, and he would say, I'm sorry I wasn't nice. Because we had, you know, you can't go before God and not tell your spouse you're sorry. You got to, you know, you got to let the people know that we are perfect people and never fight. <laughs> but um, anyways, we, we, I have, I have lived in every kind of state there is. I've, and I'm not talking about the United States. I'm talking about every state. I'm telling you that God changes lives. God completely changes lives. And one of the things that we as Christians don't understand often is that we still believe that we're the same people that we were before we got saved. And that's one of the reasons that we don't see the change is because there's a belief system in us that says you're still the same person. I asked the Lord one time, I said, Father, 
I don't understand double-mindedness because James says, let not a double-minded man think that you can receive anything from God. And I said, I don't understand double-mindedness. I don't understand if I'm double-minded, when I'm double-minded. I need you to teach me. I was on my way to Manila to do on a mission trip in the Philippines when, on the plane and when I asked him that. You know, God, God, God never is late. He just misses opportunities to be early. He could have told me right at that moment. He, he, I don't know why he had to think about it for a while. But he thinks about things for a while before he tells you the answer. In the middle of the night, I'm in the hotel. I'm sleeping. And I hear his voice. And he says, Beverly, you're double-minded when your subconscious mind believes one thing and your conscious mind believes another You know how we talk about we get triggered? We get triggered because our subconscious mind flips up. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the the example that I immediately thought about when God talked to me about being double-minded. I I when I was a little girl, when I was growing up, my dad would come home from the bar drunk and my dad had an ulcer. For whatever reason, my dad thought milk helped the ulcer. And so There was always going to be a fight. It was inevitable. But depending on how bad the fight was or how soon the fight started, would be it would depend on if there was milk in the refrigerator. This is really a stupid example, but it's my life. And so so my mother, for whatever reason, in her brilliance, she would buy one quart of milk. That's all she would buy. And it, was, it had to be saved for my dad. So there were, there were six children in the house, and we weren't allowed to drink the milk, but we always made sure milk was in the refrigerator before we went to bed. Because my dad would get home at one, and that's when the milk story would start. So you'd look to see if there's milk, and then you'd go to bed. When I got married, I still would look in the refrigerator to see if there's milk before we went to bed. If there was no milk, I would say to my husband, you've got to go get milk. He'd say, I'll get milk in the morning. No, we have to have milk tonight. I can't go to sleep unless there's milk. You see, it was in my subconscious. But you know, your subconscious doesn't know past and it doesn't know future. It only knows present. And when I was ministering to people this morning, there were so many things that were brought up to me that I thought this is something that isn't so embedded in, in their subconscious that they, they feel like they can't get free because it keeps coming up at them that, that there's no milk. There's no milk. And so we fight each other. We fight because of why? The, the fights are really pretty dumb most of the time. I mean, I would, I, would, I would get furious if my husband wouldn't go get milk. My sister told me one time that she made her husband go get milk in a snowstorm that, that, that they had warned people not to get out of the house because she had to have milk. Not that we had to drink it, but we had to have it. You see, my subconscious said this. There's no milk. It's the same as it's always been. Somebody is going to die tonight. Somebody will die tonight. You know how these new age people, they do these vision boards. And they'll put on their vision board, they'll put a date. Like a brand new Mercedes Benz, June 3rd. 
2028. So there so the reason that they do that is cuz they understand something that Christians don't always understand. They understand that their every part of their brain has to move toward that thing. And they understand that their brain, their their conscious brain under, understands 6 months. If I say to you, I'm going to come back here in 6 months. I'm going to come back to Madison in six months. In six months from now, my subconscious is still going to be saying six months from now, six months from now, six months from now, because your subconscious does not understand past or future. It understands present. And that's why we get triggered. That's why we call it, oh, I got triggered. It's because it comes up and there it is again. But if I say a date, then everything in me integrates and it moves toward that date. You see, it becomes one. One of the problems with us as Christians is that we know we don't come into unity because we all have different reasons and different beliefs that we think are going to happen. Do you know, it's, there's a, a law called the law of entrainment. The law of entrainment says that when everything comes together in unity, then there will, something will happen. Remember Jericho? God said, I want you to go around Jericho for seven days. And on the seventh day, go around seven times. Then what did he say? He said, but don't say a word. Don't talk. He said, don't talk. You know why he said don't talk? Because when we open our mouth, we ruin everything. <laughs> I mean, we ruin it. I mean, can you imagine those people walking around Jericho and the Lord didn't tell them not to talk? Well, I don't know why we're walking around Jericho. We've been walking this way seven days. I mean, we've been, is it the fifth day? I can't believe it. It feels like a month. I don't know why God's telling us to do this. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's happening. Look at everything. Jericho's still the same. They're in there mocking us. They're laughing at us because they say, well, how can just walking around our city hurt? us. You're at battle. Boy, you guys are really big battle guys. You're not, nothing's going to happen. You see, we ruin the plan of God often with our mouth. We ruin what God is telling us by speaking against what he's saying. And so, so the law of entrainment says that if you march in unity, that, that there, that something's going to happen. This whole thing, you can look, you can Google this. Google's always right. <laughs> I mean, even if you don't believe it, if you Google it, you know it's right. There was a man in England in the 1500s that, that he had these two clocks side by side. And every time he'd go through the room, he'd notice the pendulums were moving the same way. So he'd change them so they weren't. Then he'd come back, they'd be moving the same way. Because when you get beside somebody and you get in unity with them, you cannot help but march in the same way. In the 1800s, there was a platoon of soldiers marching in England, and they got to a bridge, they got to a river, and there was a long bridge, and they marched, they kept marching in unison. Do you know what happened to the bridge? It fell. And so it's a law in the military that when you get to a bridge, when you get to something like that, you have to get out of step with each other. I'm telling you this for a reason, because God wants to do something here that he cannot do if we open our mouths. <laughs> and, and so 
in Jer- when they were walking around Jericho, they're walking and they're walking and they're not saying anything. He says, on the seventh day, march seven times. And then he says, and then I want you to shout. Do you know what happened when they shouted? They shouted in unison. And that shout in unison tore the walls of Jericho down. God doesn't waste anything. You know, my heart was broken when I was over here praying for people this morning because somebody said to me, I can't, I can't break through. I can, I can, it's always the same. It's never going to change. Life is always going to be the same. I live in, I don't have any joy. I don't have any peace. Listen, you guys, there is joy and there is peace for us, but we cannot do it our way. We must do it God's way. We cannot do it our way. It has to be done God's way. God has a plan for us, but he says, I want you to come into the, the, I want you to come into that plan. And I just want to read right now, Colossians 2, 9 through 15, because I want you to understand what Jesus actually did for us. It says, for in him, All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him, who's him? Him is Jesus. In Jesus, all of the deity is formed. It's all in him. Guess who you are in? You are in Jesus. I am in Jesus. Do you know what? I'm not just a person. I am a realm. I'm not just a person. I'm not just standing here and I end right here. I have a realm around me. Jesus has a realm around him. And in that realm, I move into that realm and I stand with him. I am inside of him and he is inside of me. In him dwells all the deity in bodily form. And that's who we serve. Is Jesus here today? Are you here today? If you're here today, raise your hand. If you are here today, raise your hand. Okay. If Jesus is in you, raise your hand. Oh, amen. So is Jesus here today? And is he here in bodily form? Is he here? Is he able to set us free in every way? Is he able to do that? Yes, he is. He is, and him is all the deity in bodily form. When I arrive, the Holy Spirit arrives. When I arrive, Jesus arrives. When I arrive, the Father arrives. And that's who you are. If you think I have something more than you have, let me tell you, if I can minister, if I can go to the nations, if I can, if I can set people free, if I can be free, Free. There's not one person in this room that cannot. I, I came from poor white trash. I was 16 years old when I got married. I never got an education. I raised three children. I lived on a farm in a little tiny poor town that, that people would say, you'll never go anywhere or do anything. I had nothing. I had nothing. I had parents that didn't want me. I had parents that were friends with Bonnie and Clyde, with Pretty Boy Floyd, with Machine Gun Kelly that came to our house and lined their guns up beside the wall and sat at the table and talked about their shenanigans. And this is what my mother would say about him. They were good people. 
Listen, you guys, stop comparing yourself with one another. The word of God says that we compare ourselves with one another. And when we do that, we will never arrive in in our peace, our joy in who God is. So it goes on to say, and in him you you have been made complete. We are complete. Say, I am complete. I am complete. And he is the head over every ruler and authority. Every ruler and authority. You know what? I, the, the only time that I cannot cast a devil out of somebody is when they believe that Satan has more power than God. It's the only time. Because they believe that he has more power. As long as you believe that, he has a claw that he can keep inside of you. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision performed without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So I have been circumcised. Sorry, man. This is the way it happens. I mean... Used to be just the men, now we can get it too. So I've been circumcised. All that flesh been cut off me. Having been buried with him in baptism. Who's been buried with him in baptism? We've been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all wrongdoings. Say, I am forgiven of all wrongdoings. I am forgiven of all wrongdoings, having canceled the certificate of death, of debt, and death too, of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed, he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made, listen, He made a public spectacle of the enemy. He made a public spectacle of the enemy. He didn't didn't go off in a corner and say, here, listen, I want to tell you this, but I don't want anybody to know it. I'm, I'm, I'm making you a spectacle. He didn't do it. He made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through him. We have triumphed over the enemy through him. We have triumphed over the enemy through Jesus. When we get saved, when we give our heart to Jesus, we pass from one life into another life. We're not the same person anymore. That person died. When I got baptized, that person that I told you about, that person that was unwanted, that person that, that shouldn't have been born, that person that got pregnant at 16, that person that, that uh, the only kind of love that I knew when I was a teenager, when I could even, by the time I was 12 years old, the only love that I could feel or know was sexual love. But that person died 
That person died. That person died the day I went under that water with Jesus and I was buried with him and resurrected to a brand new life. And let me tell you something. We have got to believe that so much in our life that we, uh, that we will, we will, we need to memorize that scripture. We need to read that scripture. We need to dream about that scripture because that changes your life. And you know what the word of God says? That the way is so simple that even a fool can enter in. That was such good news for me because I said, even I can understand this. Even I can understand this. I don't, I, I don't understand much, but even I can understand that, that I'm not the same person. I'm going to tell you a story about Africa. I could tell you a million stories. I love storytelling. I love, I used to have a group. We would meet in a restaurant and it was, it was just for telling stories. <laughs> Your story had to be five minutes or under and you know, we had so many people just their lives changed just from hearing the stories. So I encourage you, the ladies, do, do something like that. Women love stories. There's a, there's a girl in Africa. <clears throat> she is a pastor's daughter and she loved the Lord and she's saving herself from marriage and she's saving herself and being, she was a good girl. She was a Christian and she was in the choir. So one night she's at choir practice and she had no vehicle, no way to get home. So she's walking home. And as she's walking home, three, three men attack her and two of them hold her down and one of them rapes her. And so she made a vow that she would never tell anybody. She was so ashamed that this happened to her. She would never tell anybody what happened. Well, it ended up that she was pregnant. So she had to tell her parents. And, you know, at first her parents, I mean, it was devastating to them. And then they had to tell the church. And then, you know, they said, oh, you know, she's not a nice girl. She wasn't a nice girl. They, they, she had to sit in the back of the church. She could never do anything in the church. She had a little boy. And when her little boy was three years old, she went to another church <clears throat> close by to a revival. And the, the evangelist said, if you'd like to give your testimony, come up and uh, come up to the front and you can give your testimony. Well, she went up to, to give her testimony of how faithful God had been to her, even though her son was born at, at, from rape, that he had been faithful to her and to her son and what a blessing her son had been to her. And when she, finished, when she finished her testimony, the evangelist closed his Bible. And he walked over and he handed her the Bible and he said, this is your Bible. He said, the night that I raped you, he said, you left your Bible and I took your Bible home and I read it and I got saved from reading your Bible. You know, he said, I want to marry you and I want to give our child a name and I want to be a father to him and I want to be a husband to you. You know, we would have said, well, he's got to go through 20 years of counseling, and then I want to see, make sure he goes to prison for this, and then, all, you know, all these things. But there's an understanding that is among the people of Africa, and it's just what I just said, just talked to you about. There's an understanding that when you get saved, that you're not the same person that you were before you're saved. And the, as long as the enemy can convince us that we are the same people that we used to be, we will never live in victory. We will always be a victim.
We will always be a victim. And so we, we as Christians, and especially in America, I think we get this attitude that, that, you know, this is what I did, and this is how bad my sin was, and this is how wrong it was. My husband used to be so embarrassed of his sins. So, you know, it, I was a dutiful wife. I told everybody his sin. <laughs> because it got rid of the shame. You know, now he's not ashamed anymore. The whole world knows about his sin. Because you see, we don't have to be ashamed of our sin. I had a missionary tell me one time in Africa, don't tell Africans that you got pregnant at 16. I said, why? It's what happened to me. She said, well, because it's so shameful and, and, and that's just not something we talk about here. I said, it's something we should talk about because you know what? I'm not that person anymore. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. What matters is how you finish. Do you know that I've been in, I've been in, I've been in the ministry about 50 years. When I was, when I was in my early 20s, I, I, I started a youth group in a church of 75 people. I had 100 kids in my youth group. You know why I had 100 kids in a youth group of a 75 people? Because I wasn't religious. I didn't know how to be religious. I didn't know how to be religious. I didn't know how to tell them that if you're a Christian, you got to take your makeup off. You got to do all this. You got to do all that. I told them about Jesus and we would have, we would have soup suppers and we would sell soup because we wanted to, we, we had to buy cars for missionaries. And so we'd be running out of soup and I'd say, come on, you guys, let's multiply the soup. And we'd gather around and the soup would multiply and we'd have enough for everybody. We saw miracles. We, we, we prayed for miracles because I was so dumb that I didn't know any different. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to pray for miracles. I didn't know you weren't supposed to tell kids that God is high adventure. He's high adventure, you guys. If I was somebody that got saved and just sat in a chair on Sunday morning and went out the door and lived just a mundane life and then came back, paid my tithes, sat in a chair, my gosh, I'd be bored. (laughs) You see, God is high adventure. He's high adventure. And right now, you guys are right on the very verge of the, on the very edge of high adventure. You see, the enemy has tried to shut us in. He's tried to shut us in and keep us from, from knowing who we are and knowing what God has planned for us. And we see the governments tightening up and we see uh, the beginnings of one world government and we, and we want to talk about, is this the days of the Antichrist? Is this, is, is this what's going to happen? Are things bad coming? Are we going to be persecuted? Is this going to happen? Let me tell you something. This is what's going to happen. People are going to find who Jesus is. People are going to find Jesus. We are living in a time where, where the enemy is telling us that we are shut in, that there is a door that is closed and any way we turn to look at any door we look at, the enemy says, it's closed to you. 
it's not gonna happen. We're afraid, oh, can we pay for our groceries? Can we pay for our gasoline? What if we have to have an electric car? What if, what if the government, what if the government starts to put pr- Christians in prison? I hear it all. Have you heard that? Have you heard that video? Have you watched that video? Let me tell you something. We are living on the edge of the finest hour of the church. We're living on the edge of the finest, the finest hour of the church. Is persecution coming? Oh, let's pray so. Let's pray so. Because let me tell you, when that comes, God has opened doors for us. And right now, for your church, the Lord is saying to you that I have set before you an open door that no man can shut. That this city, the city of Madison, I hear I hear stories about the city of Madison all the time. I have a nephew that lives here. I have a nephew that lives here, and he was raised to know who Jesus is, but he's he was a policeman and he moved to Madison, Wisconsin. I don't know where he is. I love him. He's my great great nephew, not my nephew, but my great nephew. And he started a company and my maiden name is Nottingham. And so his name of his company is Nottingham Nectar. If any of you know him, his name is Patrick. So you better get him saved. (laughs) Because you're going to have to answer to God if you know him and you don't. (laughs) But here's the thing, you guys. Here's the thing. God has given you the keys to this city. And, and because this city, this city is, this city is what I understand. It's people that don't really want to know who Jesus is. Why doesn't the world want to know who Jesus is? First time I ever heard that he died for me, I gave my life to him. I was, what? Why wouldn't somebody want to do that? Why wouldn't they? You see, it's sometimes it's because, because we don't know who we are. We don't know who we are. We're, we're people of honor. We're people of integrity. We're people of dignity. We're people that, that stand in the midst of anything. You know, I went five times during the Bosnian War and ministered to the women that had been in the rape camps. And they were Muslim women. And I started to go to, somebody told me you have to learn about the Muslim religion to be able to speak to those women. You can't talk to them unless you know their religion. So I went to, I went to one class, I went to a class that was going to teach about the Muslim faith. And so I'm sitting in the class, the class had just started, I heard the Holy Spirit say, if I be lifted up, I'll lift all, I will bring all men unto me. If I be lifted up, all men will be drawn to me. And I said, Father, do you want me in this class? He said, do you need to know about Muslim religion or do you need to know about me? You see, I know Jesus. And so I went, I took seven other women. We got there. Here's these Bosnian women. They're coming in. They'd lost everything. They're coming into this center. I told them, if you come to this center, I will pay for you a seven day, a 10 day holiday because they were in refugee camps and they were, they, they, they had nothing. They, 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 their, their husbands had been killed. Their sons had been killed. They had been raped and they had lived in terrible conditions. I said, come and I'm going to pay for a 10-day holiday. All you have to do is come to two meetings a day. 
And so my ladies that were with me, we got there and they thought I was smart, but I'm not smart. They said, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. They said, how are we going to minister to him? I said, I don't know. And so I got into the first meeting and the father said to me, listen to them, listen to their stories. And so I said, oh, I said, I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear your stories. There were 52 women in that room that first time. I said, I'd like to hear your stories, where you, who you are, want to get to know you. There were judges, there were professors, there were lawyers, all kinds of professional women in there, doctors, and they didn't want to tell me about the war or about the rape camps that they'd been in. They wanted to tell me who they used to be, what they used to be, because they were women of honor. I listened to them, and then I told them my story, told them how I found Jesus, and Jesus had become my best friend. And so there was an Orthodox woman that was in there, and she came to me after the second meeting, and she said, if you don't stop talking about Jesus, the Muslim women won't come back. I said, oh, thank you so much for giving me that information. I appreciate it. And one of my ladies was standing beside me, and she walked away, and she said, we're not going to talk about Jesus? I said, well, of course we are, but we have to thank her for the information. (laughs) So, you know, because I didn't know a thing about their religion, I could say anything I wanted. Because I didn't study their religion. I studied the real thing. I studied Jesus. And so I would talk all about Jesus, and I I would never say Christianity. I wouldn't say the word Christian. I would just say, oh, you know, he's my best friend. He's my best friend, and he changed my life, and this is what he's done for me, and this is what he's done for me. And at the end of every meeting, I would say, oh, please forgive me if I've offended you because I talk about Jesus. I just can't help it because he's my best friend. Oh, they would forgive me every time. No problem. It's no problem. On Wednesday night, that first time, on Wednesday night, I'll never forget the first time I was there. A lady raised her hand in the back. She was a lawyer. And she said, you talk about Jesus. And you talk about how he's your best friend. And she said, can you tell us, how did he become your best friend? I said, oh, thank you for asking. You know, that's a very good question. <laughs> and so I gave him the plan of salvation. And when I gave him the plan of salvation, the Lord said, don't push him. So I told a story about Esther. You can, you can talk to Muslims about Old Testament. I told them all the story about Esther and how, what Esther did for her people. And I finished. And then I said, you know, at the beginning of the, of the class, I talked to you about my best friend and how Jesus became my best friend. If you would like to make him your best friend, raise your hand. I want to pray for you. All but two women raised their hand. All but two women got saved. It happened that way every single time I went. And I said, oh my gosh, what a high adventure. What an exciting life. What a life of of total, pure, adventurous excitement every day. Let me tell you something. It It was high adventure because... People are waiting in a crisis to hear if there's any savior. And we wait till the war is finished and go in. Once the war is finished, everybody goes.
ourselves in. I said to the ladies that were with me, I said, we're coming in here as long as a war is going on. We'd go right into the war. We'd go right into the war. We had machine guns held at our head. What high adventure. (laughs) I mean, it's adventure because God has changed us. He's changed us. Let me tell you something. Some of you are at an open door, but it looks like you're not. It looks like everything in your life is the same as as it's always been. There's people here right now that your kids look hopeless. My kids looked hopeless. My daughter was within two weeks of dying. I had to put her in the hospital. The doctor told me with two more weeks, she would have died. Let me tell you what you do when you've got children like that. You say that door of life is open and I am going through it and I am not going to stop until it's finished and I prayed for my daughter I took Isaiah 54 I said God give me a scripture he gave me Isaiah 54 for three weeks 21 days I prayed that day and night day and night day and night I had my oldest son walk away from God I didn't even know where he was for two years I prayed over him day and night day and night day and night because the door is open. But let me tell you, there are two spirits that keep us from going through the door. Number one, it's fear. It's fear. And we've got to get rid of fear. Oh, you have to know this, you guys. You have to know that the spirit of fear is always a demon. It's not a feeling that you have. It's not just, well, you know, I have a little fear. It's a demon. Fear is a demon. And so, so I... I prayed, I prayed and knowing I could not stand in fear for it. We, when we are facing something, we can't stand in fear. Let me tell you the other one. The other one is a spirit of Python. This is what Python does. Python sucks the life out of you. Let me tell you how you feel when Python has sucked the life out of you. You feel passive. You feel, you feel dead. You feel like God's never going to answer anything for you. You don't want to read the Bible. You don't feel like praying. And when you do pray, you don't even know how to pray. Because Python sucks the life out of us. Let me tell you who has the spirit of Python that, that, that absolutely will impart that to the people of God. And the people of God don't even know it. It is the witches. It is the fortune tellers. It is the psychics. It is your horoscope that you read. It is yoga. It is all of these things that we as Christians say, this is just nothing. It's okay. If I don't really believe it, it's okay. That is the spirit of Python and it has sucked the life out of the church. And when we're passive, when we can't, when we can't read our Bible, when we can't pray with fire, when we can't trust God, when we can't believe God, that, that spirit has sucked the life out of us. Some of you sitting here today, read your horoscope and think it's okay. Some of you sitting here today, do yoga and you think it's okay. Let me tell you every single move of yoga is inviting a demon to come into you. And when they reach nirvana, do you know what nirvana is? It is a snake that wraps itself around our spine. We have Christian yoga, hot yoga, uh, uh, Yahweh yoga. We have all of these things. And pastor, if I'm offending, I'm very sorry, but I'm leaving and pastor Tom will deal with me. But, but we have got to come back. 
into the place where God's called us to be. Because when, when my child is dying, the door is open for me to go through to bring her life. And, and I prayed for 21 days. And one day on the 21st day, the Spirit of the Lord just came over me and gave me a witness that the battle was finished. My daughter was still in the hospital, but she came home from the hospital. She was angry with me because I'd put her in the hospital. My daughter had anorexia and bulimia, and she'd had it for six years and Christian counselors kept telling me she's okay she's doing good but she wasn't she was dying my daughter we went through Christmas and my daughter was angry and one night in January that year at two o'clock in the morning my daughter came to my bed and she was crying and she said mom come and look what God just spoke to me I walked in the kitchen and she had her Bible, the Amplified Bible, which I always pray out of the Amplified Bible. It's the women's Bible. It has a lot of words and that's a good Bible to pray out of because if you, because when you're praying, you want to say all the words. You want to say what they mean. You want to say it all and you got it right there in the Amplified Bible. And so I looked at it and I said, honey, what does it say? My daughter read Isaiah 54 to me and I acted as though I didn't even know what it said but I knew that night God she climbed into my lap she I held her like a baby and God completely delivered her and I prayed my daughter has been one of the best mothers I have ever known she she she's a hundred percent better mother than I ever was she's got two kids that serve the Lord she has a son that's 24 I don't know what God's going to do with his life but since he was three he's been having uh, prophetic dreams and and by the time he was nine I couldn't interpret them anymore he had outgrown me and and he's such a man of God and her daughter's a senior at Baylor she's a woman of God my grandson is at Columbia in New York we begged him not to go we said it's too liberal he said I got to learn how to talk to those people sometime. You see, we've got to raise our kids to know that they are victors, not victims. My oldest son walked away. He married, he married someone that, was, that hated us because we're Christian. I didn't even know where he was. I prayed and prayed and prayed and walked the floor for two years. For two years, I walked the floor and I believed for him and I prayed for him because my children will not go to hell. My children will not go to hell. You see, we have to have a determination. It doesn't matter what the, what the enemy's doing to your children. Your children belong to you. And your promise is that you and your children will be saved. One morning on Saturday morning, I got up. I opened my Bible to Jeremiah 31, 16. And it says, it says, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded and your children shall return from the land of the enemy. I went in the kitchen. I said to my daughter, Robbie's coming home. She said, mom, Robbie's not coming home. I said, yes, he's coming home. He's coming home. I went to church the next day, and a lady that had been interceding with me, an older lady, which she's probably younger than I am now, but I was young then. <laughs> she said, how is your son? I said, oh, Garnet, he's coming home. She said, did he call? I said, no, but God told me. She said, kill the fatty calf. <laughs> 
Monday night at nine o'clock. It was the days when your telephone was on the kitchen wall. You remember those days? At nine o'clock that night, my phone rang. I said, hello. And my son said, mom. I said, Robbie, where are you? He said, I'm coming home. Within an hour, he was home. And he met a woman eventually that was a great woman. He has two daughters. His oldest daughter can preach better than I can preach. His youngest daughter can lead worship. My grandchildren and my children walk with God. Let me tell you something. God has set before this church an open door. And pastor, God has given you the keys to this city. He's given you the keys to the city. I don't know what the key is, but God will show you what the key is. He has given you a key that when you, uh, when you turn that key into that lock, there's going to be multiple, multiple people come into this church crying out for God to save them. Because there is an anointing on you that is different. It's like David. No, it's like, it's like Caleb. God called Caleb, a man with a different spirit. And God calls you, pastor, a man with a different spirit. You can see what others can't. You can see, you can see beyond what others can't see. And you can, you can see into situations that others can't. God's going to send you into places where people say they're going to eat you alive and you're going to walk in and God's going to clear a path for you. And people are going to see the presence of the Lord. God has given you the keys to this city. He's given you the keys to know how to bring revival to this city. And there's going to be one pastor and one pastor and one pastor and one pastor join you. It's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be a process, but you're going to know the process to take. The Lord says, I'm directing your steps. The Lord says, I have put new shoes on you. I have put a new mantle on you because the, the other the other uh, uh, armor that you were wearing, it got way too little for you. It was too little. And God said, I put bigger, I put a bigger armor on you. And it wasn't shiny enough. There, there was some tarnish on it. And the Lord says, I've polished this one. And the Lord said, the polish will not leave. And the Lord says that I've put a helmet of salvation on you. That when you walk down the street, people are going to say, I must be saved. I must be saved. You don't have to talk because you're a man of a different spirit and because you have that mantle and you have that armor on you. And the Lord said, there's times that I will put a mantle around you that will hide the armor until the enemy challenges you. And I see the enemy challenging you and I see you throwing that mantle out like this and your armor will blind him. The Lord says, this is your season. This is your time. The Lord says, your whole life, I've prepared you for this season. I've prepared you for this time. The Lord says that I have set, he says, I have set an open door before you. I've set an open door before you. And you're going to raise up an army of people that will not be intimidated by Python and they will go forth with no fear.